Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Today's episode is the second in our series of New Year's episodes focusing on the events and dynamics most likely to shape 2024. Today, we're taking a look at the rise of far-right parties in Europe, which have recently gained support in several countries, including the Netherlands, France, Germany, Italy, Sweden, and more. The growing appeal of these parties is in many ways a reversal of the trend post-COVID. Prior to the pandemic, populism and the far right seemed to be on the march, but their inability to effectively respond to the pandemic discredited them in the eyes of many voters, and they seemed to take a back seat to the more established political parties. But in 2023, amid economic challenges brought about by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and rising concerns about migration, far-right parties were making a comeback and moving more and more into the political mainstream. Should we expect this trend to continue in 2024, and what would it mean for Europe and transatlantic relations? And to tackle these crucial questions, we're very pleased to have Catherine Feisky and Eric Jones with us on the podcast today. Welcome to you both. Hi. Peter. Catherine is a leading European political analyst and a fellow at the Robert Schumann Center in Florence. And Eric is the director of the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies at the European University Institute. All right, Catherine, maybe we can start with you. Um, you know, I want you to give us your interpretation or your lay down of where things stand with these populist and far right parties. There's been a lot of media attention on the resurgence, on the comeback. And to what extent are we, the media, kind of the political observers, overhyping the trend and the risks? Or to what extent do we need to take those warnings seriously? Well, I think it's a great question, and I think you framed it really well, right, in the sense that, you know, there was a lull in terms of their popularity <clears throat> around the pandemic. Um, but I also think it's really important to keep in mind, you know, how long this has been a growing trend. I mean, partly this reveals my age, <laughs> but also, uh, you know, it. it um, I, I'm aware of the fact that I've been working on this for the better part of 30 years. Um, and, and in a sense, you know, you could argue that there's uh, it goes in fits and starts, but really the trend has been developing and threat uh, and strengthening um, essentially from the late 1980s onwards and certainly throughout, you know, the 90s and, and 2000s. So, you know, we we had uh, um, increases in support in, in France throughout the 1980s and 1990s. Um, you know, Jean-Marie Le Pen arrived um, in the second round of the French presidential elections in 2002, right? So, you know, we're talking 20 years ago, um, you know, uh, when people were so shocked by the fact that um, Wilders had done so well in the recent Dutch elections. You know, I was a little bit shocked by their shock because, you know, this guy's been working on this and been quite successful at it for, you know, nearly 20 years. So it's been a, a, a growing trend. I don't think that we're overhyping uh, anything. And I would say there are two things that we need to keep in mind. One is that we're going to have, beyond the domestic developments that you've already evoked, um, we're going to have the European parliamentary elections in June of this year. And if we look at the various polls, of course, you know, we're months out, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is that we know that these parties are going to do 
even better than the last time or the time before that. And the second thing that we need to keep in mind is the fact that, you know, while EU elections don't influence U.S. elections, U.S. election campaigns will have a tendency to act as a very important backdrop to the kinds of discussion, but also to the kinds of issues, polarization, um, you know, that um, that we might have seen in any case in Europe, but I think are going to be fueled by the kind of um, campaign developments that we're going to see uh, in the U.S. So I, I don't think we're overhyping anything. Eric, do you see it the same? Similarly, I mean, I, I I think the one thing I would add to the story that Catherine tells is that it's not just that these right wing extremists or these populist parties are on the rise. It's that the mainstream parties are actually failing at their jobs. I mean, it's not like you can go in, in the Italian political system and vote for some awesome mainstream party, uh, or, or that in Belgium, the traditional parties that ruled the country for many years are still functional and effective. In, in fact, in France, it's just like, you know, the whole political system has exploded. So so I think there's, there is this rise of right-wing extremism, but there's also the failure of the traditional elites and meet the requirements of the democratic process. And, and, and I know Catherine wants to come in, but I just want to say one more thing. The, the interesting thing about European democracy is that European democracy was built in most countries on the assumption that there would be effective political parties. And, and so the whole constitutional arrangement assumes these political parties do the difficult intermediation between voters and elites. And, and without that, it's not just the rise of populism. It's the it's the the weakening of the constitutional arrangement and the effectiveness of government. Full stop. I I agree with that completely, and I and I would also add that um, it's the weakening of these arrangements. It's the weakening of the mainstream parties, and even more specifically than that, um, I would argue that it's also because of this weakening and uh, of of both of these you have center-right parties that have uh, not only not done their job, but actually, you know, you could argue have moved themselves, um, you know, to the, to, to the right. So they're weak and they're drifting. And in a sense, they're kind of, you know, unhelpfully fanning the flames um, of, around certain issues and, and not actually um, collecting much on this, but they are definitely strengthening, you know, the, the right-wing populists and, and, and the far right. Okay, there's so much here in so many different directions to go. And before we dig into certain cases, because I, Catherine, as you're talking, I'm thinking of what happened in the Netherlands, it's for in particular, but you know, uh, right before the pandemic, um, we at CNES had done a report on populism, and I was just looking back at some of the factors that we had listed as being key drivers of these populist, uh, and in particular, the far-right populist parties. And the list that we had, you know, we talked a lot about inequality. We talked, as you're saying, about the declining bonds to traditional parties. We talked about the rising salience of identity politics, economic grievance, the changing role of the media, kind of the ability of leaders to bypass the media, speak directly to voters, and declining trust in institutions. Is it the same list of drivers now as it has been, Has you know, that's been driving this longer term uptick in the rise for these parties, Catherine, that you characterize? Or is there is there anything new about this current fit or this current uptick in support? 
I mean, I think you've, you know, you've zeroed in on, you know, on really a lot of them, a lot of the main ones, you know, um, I would argue that there is a, you know, some sort of like three key drivers, you know, that unhelpfully um, egg each other on, if you like. Um, one is that, you know, we are on top of everything that you said, I think that um, we're seeing a kind of two drives that are cross purposes. And one is that sort of, you know, rising expectations from voters that their views are going to be taken into account, that their views are going to be catered to, that their needs are going to be catered to, um, you know, quickly and, and efficiently. And at the same time, um, I think policymakers and decision makers, politicians um, are faced with very diverse publics, very fragmented publics, which actually makes policymaking delivery more complex, longer, difficult, possibly harder to explain, you know, which creates this impression that um, policymaking is very removed and 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 it's a bit of a black box and it fuels all sorts of accusations of corruption and and conspiracy theories. So I think there's something here about you know the times that we're in and what's interesting is how even the way that the pandemic was handled um which was a technical crisis or you know uh, if ever there if ever there was one right there's some very basic things to get right that you know we got more or less right, more or less wrong. But the fact is that this was definitely a place where um, the the popu the right wing populists or the far right, you know, couldn't make a, a, a contribution very effectively. But in a sense, even in places where that crisis was relatively speaking handled in a in a decent way, that actually gave rise, you know, to more conspiracy theories, right? So, you know, you're kind of damned if you do, damned, damned if you don't. And then I think that the the last point I would make is um is to just highlight how important your point about inequality is, right? Um, and that is something that uh, to some extent, explains why we've got this jagged edged, but nevertheless steady rise, I think, in the kind of frustration that fuels this kind of vote. Um, we saw it very clearly in the UK vote um, in favor of Brexit, for example, you know, that idea of the take back control slogan. I think that that was, um, you know, really important, but it was also very much a revolt of people who weren't necessarily doing badly financially or economically, or you know, were particularly economically left behind, but felt unequal to a social class that was more cosmopolitan, more um, you know, whose aspirations were different, and and in a sense, the the growing gap between this kind of ordinary public and those people who are doing particularly well, right, financially, but also culturally. So one thing, Eric, you mentioned right before we started recording is the role of Russia. And that was, I mean, as Catherine was talking, I was, that wasn't on my list. Um, and there's obviously been a lot more focus on the Kremlin's efforts to cultivate ties to some of these leaders on the far right, I guess on the far left too. But I don't know, to, to, to what extent do you think that that it has meaningfully contributed to the rise of these parties? Or is it really... You know, is this really a problem that's just happening from within? You know, I don't. How much can we blame on what the Kremlin is doing versus how much responsibility do we need to own up to and and really see this as a crisis from within our own democracies? 
No, I think the, the the Russian story is interesting, but I think the best way to think about what Russia did about 20 odd years ago when it started investing in these right-wing extremist parties uh, is, is Russia was like the, the teenage kid that bought a bunch of Bitcoin when it first came out, right? And then just never really played with it anymore. So I don't think the Russians caused right-wing populism to be successful. I think they just locked out because they woke up one day and were like, oh my God, these things I just bought for like pennies 20 years ago are worth so much more than I ever could have possibly imagined. And, and in that context, what Russia did was, was actually create an opportunity, a kind of a playground for these people to come together and begin talking to one another. I don't think this is what made them as attractive as they are right now, but I do think it gave them certain skills. It gave them certain networks and certain abilities that they otherwise would not have had. And it certainly gave them at key points in time financial resources that they desperately needed. So, you know, I, I'm just trying not to take away from the fact that the real problem lies in our own democracies. It's not Russia is not the real problem. Is Russia is the salt in the wound, but the wound is something that we've inflicted on ourselves. And and the, the one thing I would add, the two things I would add actually, to, to Catherine's contribution, are it's getting a lot worse now because the mainstream parties have done so many odd things in order to try to hold on to power. The more you give people a choice between left and right, and then a government that combines left and right, you shouldn't be surprised that people are going to start to go to the extremes. And, and, and so the, the center is being evacuated. Um, and, and the other thing is that once voters change from voting for one party and vote for another party, their willingness to vote for a third party is, is much easier, right? And, and so what we're seeing is, is actually the electorate sloshing around from one political movement to another as they look for somewhere that's going to satisfy the, the itch that they need scratched. People who voted in the Netherlands, for example, for Herr Wilders and, and his TV, are the same 25% or 23 to 25% who voted for Pim for Town in 2002. And they just keep sloshing around looking for a home. And, and you know, they found a home in, in Wilders, but how long that's going to last, we'll have to see. Yeah, it's such an interesting point. I mean, with that declining bond to traditional parties. Um, and and I, I love that sloshing around. I think that's just such a useful way to understand it. Um, but Catherine, you were going to add. Just to add to what Eric's just said, which is that they're sloshing around from party to party. And they, um, you know, one of the most characteristic patterns when people uh, vote for uh, some of these parties is that they, they voted for they voted traditionally for one party, then they stopped voting altogether, right? And then when they vote again, when they finally turn up again, they vote for uh, populist or, or, or far-right parties. Um, it's it's true that there's, there's very little allegiance, right? Or at least so far, there's been very little allegiance. One of the trends that I think is worrying is that we're starting to see some of that change. 
in a place like France, for example, right? We, you know, the Rassemblement National and, um, you know, uh, Le Pen in one form or another, father or daughter, um, they've been around for a while now. And, and actually we're starting to see something that does look like, you know, a more steady vote for, um, for them. So that, that's something, that's something that is a slightly worrying trend, but, but nevertheless, the fact that, you know, people vote one way, vote another, stop voting altogether. Um, you know, this is pretty characteristic. Let's, I, I want to dive into a couple of these cases, and you both have mentioned the Netherlands. Um, can you talk a little bit about what happened there? And are there lessons about what not to do um, for other uh, parties? There's one key thing that you need to know about the Netherlands, um, which is that um, in, in most European countries, you have multi-member districts, so proportional representation, but you've got multiple multi-member districts. So people vote geographically for one of a handful of seats that are available in Parliament. In the Netherlands, you've got one electoral district, which is called the Netherlands, and it's got 150 seats. It's almost purely proportional. And, and, and as a consequence of which, you need two-thirds of a percent of the vote, and you can get a seat in Parliament, right? It's impressive. And, and what we've seen in the Netherlands is that, that the political system was basically dissolved. There was a time when three political parties captured more than 80% of the electorate. Now, no three political parties can even form a government. And, and, and as a consequence, you know, the thing that happened is they've lost control over the conversation in, in all of this. We're talking about Herr Wilders. He had 23% of the vote, right? So that's that's really small. And, and unfortunately, this is becoming a phenomenon that will never be as extreme in, in, the, in other European countries as in the Netherlands, because the Netherlands is so extremely proportionate. We nevertheless still talk about the Dutchification of the electorate as there's this splintering of political parties. How do you stop that? Anybody's guess. No one has figured out how to bring voters back into the same institutional frame. And without that, it becomes very difficult to make decisions in, in Parliament. Uh, hi there. Uh, it's great to see you too. I'm just, I'm rather late to the game. <laughs> In this particular podcast, but it's thanks for coming on and on all that you've been saying. Um, I, I uh, I've got a more basic question for you, uh, and I guess we should have started with something like this. But for Americans, as uh, for the our American listeners, when we talk about a European right wing party or European extremists, obviously it depends on the country in a lot of ways. What how does that translate? But for an American, I think they when they hear a European extremist. Uh, fascist. They're going to think of Hitler, Mussolini. They're going to think of maybe a, a Trump-like person. Uh, so, but they're but a lot of times their their expectation is that uh, an extreme is something to be feared. Uh, that it's going to be something that's going to be violent. Just just because of you know we're far we're far removed in a lot of terms and titles that we give to to European politics. Uh, we might use the same name and same term here in the U.S., but it doesn't mean the same thing. So my question for you is, 
in a general way, I mean, if you were talking to Americans, what does it mean to be an extremist? Le Pen, for instance, in France, uh, or uh, Geert, you're talking about, how does that manifest itself? We're not really talking about a Trump-like person taking over and they're going to they're going to root out the, you know, non-believers and the bureaucracy and all this type of thing. What, what is it? How does it manifest itself in Europe? What does it look like in Europe? Uh, and, and, and how does it actually how is it actually similar in the U.S. when you're talking about extremism in the U.S.? I mean, there, there are some things that are similar, but, but there's a lot that's dissimilar. So could you kind of paint a, a picture for folks who might not get the nuance of European politics and when we talk about extremism. Um, should I begin and then? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that this is why um, we probably, I think in the European context, we reserve the term extremist to only a few of, of these uh, parties. And most of them, I think, are thought of as right-wing populists, um, you know, sometimes far right. But I think that, you know, the ones that we're talking about, like, for example, Gerd Wilders or, or, or Marine Le Pen, these are people who, at least until they get into power, um, they're willing to play by the rules. Right. They may not like some of these institutions, but even somebody like Marine Le Pen, for example, you know, not a convinced pro-European, but, you know, she will try, you know, to change Europe from within, if you like. Right. Now, that's no guarantee at all that if she were to ever get into power in France, you know, she she wouldn't. Uh, actively undermine um, institutions, be they legal institutions or 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 the media. So I think that you know we we tend to think of them as 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 populist uh, far right parties. Although there's interesting cases, you know, somebody like Meloni, who is you know in a sense a di direct heir and descendant from a from a fascist party. You know, I mean, I think that you know you would probably call her you know an ultra conservative nationalist. Right. I mean, that's probably, you know, what I would go for. But that's not to say that there aren't Trump like figures. And if you think of Hungary and Orban, I mean, the, the kind of campaigning, the kind of media, um, media uh, ca capture of the media, capture of the judiciary, um, elimination of the political opposition, that is actually you know, in many respects, very, very violent and un undemocratic. And when people refer to Orban as a populist leader, I would say that, you know, we're probably looking at authoritarian government, you know, full-fledged, right? So I think the important notion here is that we're mainly looking at people who are influencing politics very effectively whilst in opposition. Um, others who are, have been elected uh, and are at least playing you know, using the rules of the game to change the game, but, you know, not overthrowing uh, the, the, the the game or the, the game board. Um, but there, there are lots of different shades of this. And of course, you know, people are more or less constrained once they're in power. If if, if Wilders does end up being able to form uh, a, a coalition, um, he will be constrained by his coalition partners, which will probably make it a very fragile coalition, I, I imagine. Um, you know, uh, in other systems, if Marine Le Pen were to be elected president of France, you know, she would have a lot more leeway and and a lot more power. So I think whether in power or in, op or in opposition, you know, that gives a different flavor. But 
but I think we're we're talking about a very vast array of people who have different um, you know different ways of behaving, but by and large are still nevertheless applying the rules, which is no guarantee for when they get into power. Yeah, this is a it's a good transition really to talking about then the implications of these parties and as their kind of popular support grows and as more of these parties or leaders may find themselves governing. Um, Eric, what, how do you think about the implications of these parties? So Catherine talked a little bit about implications for democracy, and you should feel free to add to that. But the other thing that I think is top of mind for many listeners is also then what it means for support for Ukraine and or whether or not they harbor more view, views that are more sympathetic to, to Russia. So I don't know, when you're thinking about the implications of these parties, what what do you what do you focus on? And could I piggyback on that just a second? I mean, um, Andrea talked about, you know, what would their position be vis-a-vis Ukraine? I think this is where a listener in the U.S. is going to say, oh, OK, so this these people, if they got elected, they might do what the Republicans are doing in the House and they're going to try to, you know, turn off uh, assistance to Ukraine, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, um, you know, so. Uh, but it might not be that at all. I mean, so I'm, I'm what I'm trying to do with this question is trying to present a picture to an American listener, particularly on kind of what this looks like if they were to get into power. You know, uh, Catherine talked about Maloney uh, there in uh, in Rome, and her legacy is a fascist party. And I remember when she was elected, people were going, "Oh my God, the fascists have come back to Rome!" and images of Mussolini. You know, well, that's not at all. Uh, what how that translates in these days? There's not goose stepping, you know, R- Roman soldiers uh, marching around. So, so as you answer though that what Andrea said, think about how to how would that look here in the U.S. Are we really looking at a similar phenomena that we saw seeing in the House of Representatives, or uh, is it really a, a European flavor that's not quite the way it's done here? No, these are. And, and- and Barry, Jim, these are these are such important questions, and what we need to do, I think, is give some compass points for Americans. Um, the the first compass point is about what makes uh, European parties extreme, right? You know, extreme versus normal, and, and and those are usually social reference points. Uh, and most of these extremist parties that we talk about right now are extreme because of their attitude toward migration. In that attitude toward migration, they were at the leading edge of that and, and began to express openly xenophobic sentiments that, that were never expressed before. And, and that's why they attracted this extremist label. Um, that's different from the 1970s when you had a lot of political groups that were out there killing people in Europe, right? So political violence is what made them extreme. Now it's less political violence and, and much more xenophobia, I would say. And and, and, and there, I think there's a a resonance with what's going on in the U.S. when we look at the southern border, that a lot of Europeans are are being attracted to these right-wing extremist groups because of immigration-related issues. Uh, And and so I think that that there's, there's a way to make a connection there. There's very little way to make a connection between left and right in Europe and left and right in the United States. The the right in Europe is not free market, libertarian right. It's it's much more pro-state, probably you know, much more pro-industrial policy kind of state. 
and and surprisingly attracted to the welfare state. So if you listen to Republican uh, rhetoric in the United States and they go, oh, you believe in nationalized healthcare, you must be a communist. Most of the right would be called communists by American Republicans, if you put it that way. And that's, that's the key, that point I'm trying to make here is what we have been talking about in the American perspective is not what they think. Extremism in the United States really means, you know, uh, Trump-like, xenophobic, you know, white, you know, uh, supremacy, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not that way. It's not the same terms uh, necessarily in Europe. I mean, you know, a conservative, what you're describing in some ways is, is, a, is a rock-ribbed Republican. Not a bag of Republican, but a Republican that you would have recognized in the 1950s uh, with a socialist twist uh, for uh, socialized medicine. <laughs> and, and this is why left and right are not good predictors of support for Ukraine, right? So Herr Wilders doesn't like Ukraine, uh, or it's not that he doesn't like Ukraine. He doesn't like sending money to Ukraine because he wants all that money to be spent in the Netherlands and doesn't see the economic advantage. You come to Italy. And the right-wing government is is actually quite supportive of Ukraine, despite the fact that the Lega allegedly received a huge amount of money from Russia. Lega leader Matteo Salvini is, is now duly following the line set by Georgia Maloney and supporting Ukraine. You would have to go to the kind of weirdly now left-wing five-star movement to find something that resonates the same way that Kurt Wilders is talking about Ukraine in Italy, right? So in, in the Netherlands, it's on the right, and in Italy, it's on the left. And, and I think we're seeing that kind of variation across Europe. The AFD in Germany is very much um, not eager to support Ukraine, but again, for the same reason. They just want all that money spent at home. There's some Russophilic sentiment that I, I, I think is more an allegation, but, but probably exists as well. Um, but but the real thing is they just don't want that money to go out of the country. They're being very isolationist, much like I think the Republican Party is expressing or parts of the Republican Party are expressing a sense of isolationism today. I guess the one similarity, though, that, Jim, I, I definitely appreciate the, the, the effort to differentiate what's different, but there is there are similarities between these groups and like the MAGA Trump people, which is, I mean, they they are illiberal parties and they're looking to place the needs of the majority ahead of individual liberties. They want to protect the in-group, however they define it, at the expense of other groups like immigrants or other, other groups. So, I mean, even though there's differences between left and right, a lot of times with these far-right parties in Europe, there are strong similarities in terms of that and the implications that Catherine was talking about in terms of efforts to um, dismantle democracy from within and these leaders feeling like they need to remove constraints on their ability to deliver for their voters and other things. So important differentiations, but there is a really kind of uh, strong thread, I think, that links these um, in, a, in an important way. I don't know if either of you want to respond to that. Yeah, and I and I would I would suggest that the kind of you know the white um, and sometimes in in some contexts you know Christian supremacy you know as um, in a sense as a stance against 
Islam against immigration, uh, against a certain kind of integration is something that you find very stridently, say, um, in Hungary with someone like Orban, but it's still also very, very present, you know, in in a place um, in somebody like Marine Le Pen. So it's interesting because if, if I think back to her campaign in 2022, which, you know, she did come second and give Macron a run for his money, right? Um, the, the fact is that um, you know, she didn't talk much about migration and immigration, but if you opened up her program, it was absolutely front and center. And it was about sending people back. And it was about, um, and it was anti-Islam. Uh, it was, you know, deeply Islamophobic and, and, and xenophobic. So these things are there. I just want to say a quick word about Ukraine, which is that, you know, Ukraine has thrown a bit of a spanner in the works, right, for 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 a lot of these parties. Um, and it leads us, or at least I think it's led some of us to look at um, how they relate to one another, you know, more more carefully. They they sit in the European Parliament um, in two separate groups. And one of the things about Meloni is that, you know, we're not entirely sure how much she really supports Ukraine, but we do know that she's close to the Polish uh, PIS party, and therefore. Um, you know, is lining up with them, you know, in supporting Ukraine and being uh, anti-Russian. You know, it's a, so some of these things have to do with alliances and where some of these people sit in 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 Brussels, uh, in part. And some of it has to do with you know long-standing admiration for Putin, like on behalf of Salvini or or behalf of uh, Marine Le Pen. But we have seen in some cases, well, obviously, Orban being extremely obstructionist in passing support for Ukraine, but like, but in Slovakia, something similar with Fico and Wilders, I feel like has similarly, or I don't know about anti-Ukraine, but at least maybe more views more sympathetic to Moscow. So I guess... Is that how is that a feature of these right wing parties, these kind of views that tend to be more sympathetic to Moscow? Or is it, as you're saying, just much more um, relevant or, you know, to, to the networks that they have had historically? Is it a country by country thing or do we need to worry that if you see the continued rise of these parties that that Ukraine support for Ukraine might be called into question, um, not just in terms of levels of funding, but as we're working through EU uh, expansion and in, in accession of Ukraine, um, can those things be stalled if we continue to see uh, the rise of these far-right parties? Yeah, I, I think, Andrea, the, the, the difficulty is that there are other structural elements that play into this. Um, so it would be it would be too much to say that you know Viktor Orban, if we just sort of exited him from the scene and 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 repopulated the the Hungarian political space with a political party that we that we knew loved and trusted, it all, all magically would disappear. I mean, the Hungarian economy is wholly dependent on hydrocarbons from Russia, and and you know Orban has done nothing to diminish that dependence, and at the same time. He's doing all these other things, and it's a great, it's a great uh, point of leverage for him, just to threaten Ukrainian funding. He, you know, even if he didn't care about Ukraine, he would just threatening Ukrainian funding is a great point of leverage to get money 
for other projects. So, so I think it's it's hard in that sense. And we're seeing that kind of gamesmanship. You know, if you if you were to look at the Portuguese government, for example, there's no historic relationship that I know of between Portugal and Russia. But 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 suddenly the Portuguese government is going cold on support for Ukraine. You know, why is that? Well, because there's money in the game. Uh, I think that that's something that we have to worry about as well. And that kind of opportunism is is hardly limited to Europe. Uh, and it's hardly limited to these right-wing extremists. It's just that the right-wing extremists have shown uh, a greater willingness to challenge convention in many respects. I think that, um, I mean, I think the the attitude toward, toward Ukraine is, you know, is of immediate concern, but as Eric rightly points out, you know, there's plenty of stalling in terms of support for Ukraine that isn't coming from, you know, the right wing uh, populists. I think that one area that, you know, would be most affected if they were to gain more power at the domestic level, but also if they were to be, uh, if they were to expand their presence in the um, European Parliament, the, the area that I think would suffer most is probably the European Green Deal. Right. Because this is one thing that these parties uh, share almost to a T. And that is, you know, a great uh, reluctance to endorse any kind of energy transition. They, you know, in some parts of of Europe, they're also fairly um, linked to older agrarian movements and therefore, um, you know, they have. Uh, links to to farmers uh, and agriculture, um, you know, populations that are feeling threatened by uh, by some of the European Green Deal uh, provisions. So I think that this is you know another area that you know where where actually Europe has been really quite bold in the past. Uh, you know, certainly in the past commission mandate, um, where we would see more delays. And that's partly because of the right wing populists, but it's also partly because a lot of this mainstream right is also lining up to to delay uh, a lot of this. On that, Catherine, because I know you've done such great work on, on the environmental uh, challenges associated with economic challenges associated with climate change as a kind of a wedge uh, issue in European politics. I mean, I, and I think what I would highlight out of that work is, you know, let's face it, the cost of adapting to climate change and the cost of mitigating climate change are not evenly distributed across society. And the people who have to pay those costs are finding themselves really unable to make ends meet as a consequence, right? And they're not necessarily on the extreme right. I mean, the yellow vest movement in, in France that emerged in, in, in 2018 and challenged Emmanuel Macron soon after he taken over as president um, was, was a rural movement. And, and if you were to try to explain Dutch politics today, the Dutch politics today is actually affected primarily by the emergence of this citizen farmer uh, uh, union um, that that brought people together because they were they were trying to deal with the fact that there's too much nitrogen in the soil in the Netherlands because they're they they do animal farming too intensively. Uh, but but the only way to get rid of that is basically to cull the herds, and they don't want to do that. So so the costs of these these different environmental issues are are playing into this in in challenging ways. 
It's a perfect, it's a perfect cause for right-wing populists to espouse, right? It, you know, it feels like the decisions are being taken far away from ordinary people. It feels as though ordinary people are disproportionately affected. It feels extremely technocratic. So, you know, it has all the hallmarks of the kind of policy area, you know, that that works really, really well for for right-wing populists. Yeah, that's really that dimension is, I think, often doesn't it's not as as appreciated, I think. So really important point um, in the minutes we have left. I want to look ahead a little bit um, to what we should expect for 2024. I was just pulling up as you were talking, the Eurasia group put out kind of their key risks for 2024, and they actually list the rise of populism as a red herring. So there are red herrings. Many think that these are big risks heading into 2024. We don't. And they list, they say, the populist takeover of European politics. How do, what, how do we think about the risks that this dynamic poses for 2024? What do you expect? How are you thinking about what we, uh, what we might see this coming year? And what does it look like? What does a populist takeover of Europe look like? I mean, we're speaking broadly now. We're not, but in terms of populism in Europe, what does what does that look like? Uh, if you're watching from afar, uh, how does that manifest itself? What does it look like? Shall I go ahead? <laughs> um, go for it. Go go go. Um, so I think. Um, you know, there's there's two ways, th three key things here. One is populists don't have to take over to have a massive impact, right? They're incredibly effective opposition parties. Uh, and in, a, in many ways, they have, you know, in, in many places, they've won simply because they've been able to set the agenda, right? They've been able to set the agenda on immigration, they've been able to set the agenda on the Green Deal, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So whether or not the takeover is, is beside the point. Secondly, no, they're not going to take over, right? Um, in terms, certainly in terms of the European Parliament, what we're going to see is, you know, they're going to do better. We're probably looking at, a, you know, roughly 700 seats, 120 to them. Uh, so it's not, uh, it's not a takeover. However, you know, uh, they, they have become more clever over the past few years, particularly a certain subset of them in working with the mainstream right. So what we are seeing is that actually in their capacity to work on a sort of policy by policy basis, with the mainstream right in the European Parliament, they've had an effect again, particularly on issues to do with the with with the Green Deal. So I think that you know what we're looking at is simply an effect that we shouldn't underestimate, which is the capacity for Europe to be bold, the capacity for European institutions to be bold. Um, the past uh, the past mandate, the current mandate that's ending, you know, has seen um, uh, particularly the Commission able to make some really bold decisions and um, and. You know, the worry here is not that they take over, quote unquote. The worry is that they act as a drag at a time when, in fact, you know, Europe is facing huge challenges in terms of, you know, armament, in terms of its own security, in terms of managing migration and immigration on its shores, in terms of the transition. This is no time for there to be a drag on European institutions. And that's the risk. Oh, I love that. That's so well put. Eric, anything you would add? Like, what do you what do you expect for this coming year? And I guess I'm interested to if there are any um, risk spots that aren't so widely talked about. We spend a lot of time talking about the Netherlands, France, Germany. Um, are there other countries, Romania, 
I feel like has a new far right party that's gaining traction. Are there some sleeper countries where this is becoming more prevalent that you're going to be watching? I want to come back to what Catherine was saying at the end, right? And, and it ties into what we were talking about at the beginning. The, the, the whole of the European arrangement is predicated on the existence of strong political parties. We look at these extremist groups and we don't worry about a takeover. We worry about an incapacitation of the political system. Uh, and, and the incapacitation of the political system takes place at all levels of government. Uh, at the European level, the problem is that even if there's no love loss between Robert Fico in Slovakia and Viktor Orban in Hungary, um, they each have an interest in protecting the other from the threat of an Article 7 sanction, which would be a sanction that has to do with the protection of the rule of law. And, and yet if those, those rules without protecting the rule of law are not enforced, then what we see is that there's a degeneration uh, in terms of the way that these constitutional arrangements work. And then we start to see less alternation between government and opposition uh, as that degeneration takes place. So I'm not worried about a takeover. I'm worried because democracy requires resilient defense in order to survive. And there are many places in, in Europe, and Romania is one of them, but not the only one. Bulgaria is an even worse situation. Um, where the resilient defense of democracy is weakening and, and democratic institutions are under threat. I don't see this as a threat in the sense that I would put it as a, you know, a hot spot on a heat map. Uh, I see it as a threat in the sense that, you know, once you lose that democratic checks and balances, that set of democratic checks and balances, you won't feel it as an ordinary citizen until you try to get it back. And that's what we're seeing in, in Poland right now. After eight years of, of peace rule, um, the, the new um, government of Donald Tusk is, is actively trying to reassert the rule of law, and it's difficult. Yeah, so, that's, that's such a great point. Um, and so is this something that uh, is a lesson for the United States as well? Yeah, for sure. Here's a little, I mean, it, given... The, the requirement to have a robust defense of democracy, as you said. I noted it was interesting in France to see that um, Macron has just appointed a new prime minister, someone who has the reputation of being the, a bulwark against the far right. I mean, how did you um, respond, react, interpret his move to replace his prime minister? And, and was that in your understanding, kind of the the primary driver is 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 to to try to fend off um, the the not surge, but rising support for the far right. Um, I think it was a good move. Um, you know, time will tell. Um, I don't think the sort of repelling the far right was the primary driver. I think the 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 primary driver. Macron had a choice. He could have um, gone for somebody more from the center right in an attempt to to try and work with this absence of a absolute majority in the National Assembly. And, you know, he would have made, in a sense, his life easier by appointing a prime minister hailing from the center right that might have been able to, to cut some deals. 
he decided not to do that and he decided to appoint somebody who's very young, somebody who's actually been flying high in the polls uh, over the past uh, six months, who's a combination of, um, you know, uh, youth, certainly, but also authority and also a good measure of empathy, which is, um, you know, something that uh, many French voters feel that their president lacks. Right. So in a sense, he's appointed somebody who's very close to him, who's been a Macron backer from the first hour. And it's interesting because he's decided that the way to get out of the doldrums is to go back to the original recipe. And the original recipe is a kind of centrist informed by the informed by the center left. That's where his new prime minister comes from, it comes from the Socialist Party. Um, but it's a kind of almost a back to basics and a return to an attempted return to kind of the glory days of of, of Macron in, in, in 2017. One final thing on this, um, you know, uh, I, I, I say this with some understanding of why Macron has behaved has, as he has. He has not done what he needed to do to actually quash the the far right or the rise of Marine Le Pen. In fact, you know, many people would argue he's done the opposite. He has turned them into the only opposition. He's given the French a choice between us, Macron, and them, the Rassemblement National. And so in many ways, some people would argue that, you know, he's actually fanned the flames, you know, for his own purposes. Um, nevertheless, I think, you know, the appointment of Attal is, is not a bad choice. I want to I, I want to say one thing because I think you know from the current political debate in the United States this might be worth worth noting you know there, there's this idea that that age is bad and youth is good and so he's picked somebody who's young and that's a great thing the 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 challenge is that you know young people don't have long records and they haven't got lots of experience and you don't really know how they're going to perform Sebastian Kurz was the leader of the the Austrian People's Party, and, and he was brought in basically to, to push back against the Freedom Party, which was the rising right-wing extremist group. And he was great. He was charismatic, was youngest foreign minister, became the youngest prime minister, did all these things. And then the wheels fell off the bus. He got caught up in a corruption scandal and he was out the door. And, and, and you know, as quickly and as prominently as he rose, he fell even more quickly and and more prominently. And and you know one of the things that when I when I look at Macron, I'm like so impressed with the many things that he's done, and 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 I'm so impressed with his ability to enter into the French political system, which is a staid political system in many respects, and to shake things up. And I'm so once he's gone, it'll be all shaken up, and there won't be any structure left to it. And I'm not quite sure this guy is going to be able to provide that structure um, because it's much easier to break things than it is to fix them. Oh my gosh. As we are finding, yes, in many, many <laughs> aspects of, of the global, of the world today. Okay, one final question. Um, I was trying to think of a thoughtful Jim Townsend-like question to end on, but easy, simple question when you look to 2024, do you think that the quality of European democracy will increase over 2024 or will it decline? Okay. Um, I, that's <laughs> what a, what a question to, to leave us off with. Um, I would say 
that to some extent we might see um, the quality of European democracy improve through trial, right? Um, I think that you know we might you know we might see at the European Parliament level, which is going to be a little affected but not hugely shaken up, right? We might actually see that institution come into a kind of stage of maturity where actually they might learn to function, you know, with less consensus, uh, you know, and and perhaps, you know, more more variety of uh, of expressions. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm I'm afraid that's probably more wishful thinking than reality, but it 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 could be true. <laughs> Eric. I think the other thing that I would add uh, is that there is real enthusiasm for politics. I'm not going to say democracy or elections, but for politics um, among younger Europeans. They, they, they realize they have to become involved somehow if things are going to change. Now, not all of their forms of involvement take the traditional route. There was this amazing political movement that emerged in, in Italy called the Sardines Movement, which was all about, about showing the willingness to invest in politics and, and not about engaging in elections. Um, and, and, and we've seen a political party called Volt come out of nowhere and, and try to reorganize young votes. And certainly Fridays for the Future is, is something that is you know originally European and has been very powerful in the European context, less so now, but 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 it it has had its impact. So I think there is the real potential for young people to get engaged in politics. And and I think the proof of the pudding for that is the extent to which a lot of these right-wing extremist groups are actually trying to discourage young people from getting involved in politics. Uh, and 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 I I think we need to push back against that. I think we need to make sure that the young get involved, even if they're going to make mistakes. I think it's their mistakes to make. If that makes any sense? Yeah, it does. And I love when we can end a Brussels Sprouts podcast on a slightly optimistic note. It doesn't happen very often. So um, I think this was wonderful. Um, you guys shared just so much insight into and kind of nuance, I think, in terms of in in terms of what we should expect for 2024. Um, and I thank you for taking the time to join us. Yes, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. It's been great being with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.